to the Executive Security Podcast, where we talk to CISOs and other leaders in cybersecurity space about their careers. Our goal in this podcast is to inspire others to join the fight. My name is Gene Fay. I'm the CEO of API security company ThreadX and the host of the Executive Security Podcast. Today, we are joined by Chris Weissopel, who is the co-founder and chief technology officer at Vericode, where he oversees technology strategy and information security. Prior to co-founding Vericode in 2006, Chris was Vice President of Research and Development at security consulting company at Stake, which was acquired by Symantec. In the 1990s, Chris was one of the original vulnerability researchers at The Loft, a hacker think tank where he was one of the first to publicize the risk of insecure software. He has testified in front of the U.S. Congress on subjects of government security and how the vulnerabilities are discovered, and we'll talk some more about that in the podcast. Chris received his BS in computer and systems engineers from Rensselaer Polytech Institute, and he is the author of The Art of Software Security Testing. For those that don't know Chris, he is one of the more famous people in our industry. And though modest in nature, he and the people around him in the early 90s had a major impact on what is defined as cybersecurity today. In fact, had they chosen to use their skills for evil, well, the whole internet could have been a very different place today dare I say, even scarier than it is today. So in this episode, we're going to spend some time talking to Chris about the early days of this industry and talk about why he joined and started the companies that he's been a part of. Then we'll turn to the questions of how people can learn more about getting into this industry. So Chris, how are you today? I'm doing great, Gene. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you. I'm super excited. I've had the pleasure of knowing Chris for quite a few years Bob Brennan, who is the former CEO of Vericode, introduced us at the end of a very tiring RSA. Everybody was having a drink and celebrating, and it's been great to know you over the years, and congratulations on all your success, specifically the latest announcement by TA that's making a major investment in Vericode. Yeah, thanks, Gene. Yeah, we're pretty excited that this just happened pretty uh, just about a month ago that TA came in and bought the majority of the company, and it was valued at $2.5 billion, and they're very excited to help us grow. So it's uh, fun right. times in cybersecurity. That's just amazing. I know the uh, early days of Vericode and the amount of effort it's taken to go 16 years. And I think if I have this right, there were 13 different institutional investors, plus you sold the company to CA, then it was spun out of CA to Tomo Bravo, and now Tomo Bravo. TA joining forces with Tom Bravo and that massive valuation. So I don't think you had that when you kind of you and your co-founder started the business 16 years ago as the as the uh, next phase of growth. It's been a very uh, interesting trip. I mean, we started actually as a spin out after Symantec bought at stake. We spun out the initial team and the technology, and then we're funded by venture capital. Then we're sold to a publicly traded company, CA technologies, then spun out again by private equity to be independent. So it's been quite an interesting ride. And now a second PE firm has purchased us. I think the only way that I can do another sort of corporate financing is to eventually IPO at some point. That's right. Well, you guys uh, definitely have all the potential, great leadership under Sam King and everybody else around you guys. So well, congratulations for the success. First and foremost, Listeners thinking about getting into cybersecurity, Vericode, definitely one of the top companies to check out. So please send your resumes their way. It's a fantastic organization. And I have the pleasure of having three former Vericode people on my team. 
And I know they treasured the time that they worked with you and in the early days of the organization. So uh, thank you for creating a whole mini uh, society of former Veracode people that I get to work with. I mean, we definitely have job openings. So come to the site, come to our website. We're growing. Yeah. I mean, when you've been around for 16 years, you know, people come, they grow their career, they move on to something else. I feel like we've had a big impact on the, you know, cybersecurity landscape here in the Boston area. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And again, for the listeners, we're going to go back and talk about the early 90s. And for some of the listeners, I'm sure you were just being born in the early 90s. So we're not talking about the Civil War, but we are talking (laughs) about some of the early days of uh, cybersecurity. And I think you'll find it if you open up your aperture to why you want to understand where things started, specifically in New England, but across big impact in the U.S. and around the world. If you want to learn a little bit about the past, I think it'll help you be better positioned for how you as an individual can have a massive impact on the industry, just like Chris and some of the people that he got to work with as a 20-something had such a major impact in the internet and again across the world. So having just read Cult of the Dead Cow, which many of the listeners have heard me talk about, I'm a big fan of the book. Maybe you could share a little bit of the history of cybersecurity from your perspective and maybe kind of how you got involved in the whole scene. I was lucky enough to be sort of the right place at the right time. If you read books like Outliers, you see that timing and location actually make a big difference in where you end up in your career. And I was, you know, I graduated with a computer engineering degree in the late 80s and was working at Lotus Development, one of the first large software companies for the PC in the late 80s and then early 90s. And so that put me in Cambridge which was sort of the heartbeat of software, the changes in software, mostly because of MIT, but also Harvard and the other educational institutions. It was just a time where there was a lot of brain power focused on what is the next generation of computers going to do? So it was sort of that birth of the PC software age, which, you know, kind of beget, you know, computer networking and hooking companies up to the internet. I remember I was working at Lotus I think it was around 92 or so, we actually got connected to the internet. We had, it was like a sun machine on my local, the corporate land that I could connect to and then connect to the internet. So again, an opportunity to explore Unix and explore what is this new world? So I think that was definitely, you know, a formative time for me, but also, you know, I was just curious. I was curious as a kid. So there's a lot of people who, you know, have computer science degrees or software degrees, but they might not take it outside of, you know, sort of the little box they've been placed in. And I think people that are into cybersecurity are very inquisitive to learn about how systems work. So I didn't know anything about Linux or Unix, even before Linux was available or created. I wanted to learn about Unix. I wanted to learn about networking. So I think that's part of the drive. You want to learn about things, but then you also have to have access to it, right? You have to have access to those things. One of the things that got me in touch with the local, we'll call it the hacking scene, because really there was no profession of cybersecurity yet. The way I connected was I wanted to explore, and BBSs were one of the only ways to do that before the internet. So on BBSs, you would dial up, they would have message boards where people could chat and forums, people could have conversations, but they would also have files that you could download. And so I was just 
looking for different files about how does Unix work? How does TCP IP work? Because remember, there's no internet. And I ran into people that were, you know, trying to figure out how, you know, AT&T's, you know, proprietary operating system worked. Like they found dial-ups where they could dial up and connect to an AT&T proprietary. And I'm like, what is that? Like, what are these things you can call? So it was all part of trying to understand and people would write text files. This is how it works. I just started trying to understand what's out there. How does it work? And it, it seemed like, you know, cybersecurity just was an angle on all of this stuff, right? Because these are networked computers. People have applications running on dial-up modems. And what is the meaning of how do you secure those things? So this is where I sort of transitioned from just thinking, hey, I'm a software engineer. I build and test software to what other things could software do? And maybe cybersecurity would be interesting. And this is when I started to sort of make the transition to, I think cybersecurity is what I want to do. But that probably took another five or six years from yeah. that point. The one term you hit on that I don't think there is a person that I've interviewed so far who hasn't used the term curiosity. Every CISO other leader like yourself in cybersecurity has consistently used that term, that it takes a level of curiosity and it takes a dynamic view of the world. If you're looking to, hey, come to your job and build this piece of code or do this A to B job, this isn't the industry for you. If you're looking for a constant changing dynamic, every day can be different because the adversary can be different on any given day. And they take a move. We have to take a move. They take a move. That interest, uh, but it takes a level of curiosity that can be tiring and draining, right? Because we just kind of wish our jobs were simpler day to day. But I think that as you and I have enjoyed, it's that adversity and that curiosity that, that energizes people. What jobs have the kind of curiosity that cybersecurity does? I think you think of like scientists, right? Because scientists have curiosity, like how does the natural world work, right? Like why do birds behave that way? Or why do atoms behave this way? So they're trying to figure out the natural world. I think people in cybersecurity are trying to figure out how the technology works. Like I hearken back to, you know, one of the first things I did as a child once I understood how the screwdriver works, I took apart the family phone. I was like, how does this phone work? Like there's a bell in there, there's buttons that push things. There's, how do you talk on it? And it was, so I think there's this curiosity how the technology around us works. And, you know, someone else built this thing. I don't just want to use it. I want to understand how it works. And I think that's where that aptitude for cybersecurity comes from. My mother, who's a nurse, her whole life, she was a receptionist up until her 50s. She became a master's in nursing. And when it came to computers, like when something was broke, I would fix it. And she'd go, why? I said, I don't know why. I just fixed it. But she wanted to know why. And it, it's just a learned person. And I think that level of curiosity is what driven her in her career. And I think back to cybersecurity is very much aligned to the same idea of this constantly inquisitive nature that allows us to really thrive in what's going on here. So going back to the early days, and again, for those that have read Cult of the Dead Cow, they might be familiar with The Loft, but maybe you could tell a little bit about The Loft and then how The Loft turned into The Loft Heavy Industries. Yeah, so I actually met one of the guys who founded The Loft. He went by the name Brian Oblivion, 
which is a character from Videodrome, if you're into old sci-fi movies from the <laughs> late 80s, I think. I met him at the bulletin board, and he was the author of some of these text files that were describing things like how do cell towers work and stuff like that. I'm like, this guy's really technical around radio. It's really interesting. I want to meet him. So I actually met him in person. I said, let's meet up in person. We met in Harvard Square. At the time, he was kind of interviewing me, I think. He's like, what is this guy up to? Is he a Fed? Or I'm like, you know, at the time, you know, I was working at Lotus. I was a software engineer. And he's like, you know what? I'm starting this hacker space with this other guy. And, you know, we have a few people there. It'd be great. You know, we need to split the rent for it. Why don't you come see if you want to join up? And that was around like 92 or so. And so the loft had this space. So Brian and his friend who actually lived in the building around the corner, them and their wives actually started a hat making business. And they were renting this space on in the South End, which was just an old factory building. You know, it was literally a loft space from an old factory that they were using for you know, hat making. And but their business couldn't afford the whole space. So we used up half of the space and started, you know, putting computers in there, putting all our manuals and things like that, and started working together on projects. Like, let's see if we can, like, get this all networked up. Let's see if we can get Linux running on one of these and connect to the Internet. Let's see if we can route a Class C over our network. So we just started learning by doing. And a lot of this is you had to have physical equipment, right? So you had to have a physical space, you had to have the equipment. And I think that was sort of the advantage of the hackerspace was you got people together. I think we're all longing for more togetherness in this COVID age. You actually working on projects just purely online is not as fun and engaging. So that's kind of how the loft started. And it just sort of built upon itself over the years. We just started to get more professional about what we were doing. And we started to go down this path of like vulnerability research, setting up kind of a lab environment with a machine that would be the network protocol analyzer. And we could look at a server and a client talking to each other. And we just started to kind of professionalize what we were doing. And at one point we started writing some software. We wrote this famous password cracking software called Loftcrack. And we actually wrote another piece of software which never went anywhere called AntiSniff. It was designed to try to detect if there were sniffers running on your network. We started writing this software and we said, hey, wait a minute, like, do we want to turn this into a business? Like, do we want to sell our software, right? Do we want to do red teaming and consult for companies? And so this was sort of this transition that happened after about five years. We said, actually, we should just do this instead of as a hobby as a business and quit our day jobs, right? And, you know, do what you love kind of thing. And so, but none of us were business people, really. No one had an MBA or had a business background. So we were just kind of completely winging it. Amazing how those uh, things we, can work out, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, the way that we sort of got out of this kind of winging it, not really quite making enough money to pay our bills and pay our salaries was it was kind of an aqua hire by at stake in the end of 99. We thought about, you know, should we get VC funding? But it just seemed like joining forces with this other company because they had some like-minded people there. Dan Gear was starting there. I think we 
you know, everyone should know Dan Gear. He's like a national treasure for cybersecurity. Dan Gear was joining, and we said, hey, why don't we join up with these guys? And that was sort of when the loft made that transition to become, you know, fully professional. But it was kind of a long, slow trip to that point. You hit on a great point for the listeners, uh, curiosity being number one, but number two, getting out in the industry and meeting people, meeting them in person. So like yourself, you had that natural curiosity and then you wanted to push the boundaries of maybe some introverted behaviors. You knew you had to go extroverted to put yourself out there. We've talked multiple times about B-side meetups and other types of organizations and things happening in just about every major city that allow people that know nothing about cybersecurity the opportunity to enter a group and find a mentor and help circumnavigate what has now become a big, robust industry. Yeah, I think part of the transition that was happening at the time was getting outside of sort of the insular, just sort of hacker community too. Like there was always hacker cons, but we started to go to things like Usenics and Black Hat was created at the time. And this is where you had you know, sort of the professional and government world and with Usenix, the academic world, bridging with that hacker world. And I think being able to sort of get outside your box was very valuable to us because it helped us get our message out. It helped people learn from us. We learned other things from them. One of the big get outside of, you know, your comfort zone was when we actually met up with Richard Clark. And I think this was around 97. At the time, he was working for the National Security Council in the White House. He was the, quote, cyber czar. So that was kind of getting way outside your comfort box. It's like, we're going to be talking to like the government, the federal government. And I just think it was a very valuable exchange on both sides. I think a lot of people are in fear of talking with the government. But for us, it was great. It was, uh, you know, networking with feds. Yeah, absolutely. it was very valuable, actually. I think it's a great point and talked quite a bit about in the book, Cult of the Dead Cow, the interaction you and uh, Richard had from working with the Clinton or presidency. Mm-hmm. And it ultimately culminated in you guys speaking in front of Congress, which again, for cybersecurity historians, I guess, like myself, that's a pretty famous picture. It is a famous picture, but I think it's, you know, it just the event. I'm glad we have that picture to sort of burnish it into our minds. But, you know, this was the first time that the government had uh, hearings on government security. Like this was the first time the federal government was thinking about, hey, maybe we should be securing our computers. Maybe people would want to hack us at a federal level. Like, of course, the military and the intelligence community were doing this for whatever operations they had. But this was like, you know, the Treasury Department has to be secure and, you know, the IRS needs to be secure. And, you know, even the Department of Agriculture and the Veterans Administration need to be secure. So this was like a big, you know, light bulb goes on and moment for that. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting was they actually had guys who were, you know, quote, hackers at the time. Like we were part of the hacker community. We were using our hacker names and they wanted to hear from us. So, of course, they wanted to hear from, you know, government people like the government accounting office. And they wanted to hear from uh, Peter Neumann, who was at SRI, which was a, you know, government research type place. But they wanted to hear from hackers. And I think that's one of the parts of cybersecurity that's really interesting is like the technical people that are sort of down in the weeds, figuring out how things work 
are really important too. It's not, you just can't do this by policy and by academics. You really have to get your hands dirty and touch the systems and look at the packets and be like, what's going on here? So I think we gave them really that, that viewpoint. Yeah. And that meeting in May 1998 and the Twin Towers, and I think that the relationships that were built prior to that by Mudge and you guys and others, I think ultimately allowed everybody to align around a single adversary and not to get political on the outcomes there, pluses or minuses. But I think from a cybersecurity perspective, seeing hackers and ultimately now the cybersecurity industry and the government work together on a single uh, focus, I think in that positive, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that event really accelerated people outside of the government working more with the government. I think Mudge, who was part of the loft, was probably the person that exemplified that the most because then he went and worked at DARPA. But the door was kind of open. I think this is a lot of the story of the loft is bridging between different worlds, being open to networking and bridging between different worlds. Because, you know, I think cybersecurity is also, besides being curious and technical, or most of it's technical, it's interdisciplinary, right? You need people of different skill sets to work together, right? Like someone who's in forensics and incident response has to understand the technical stuff, but also has to understand legal aspects of this, right? People who are doing social engineering have to understand, you know, human nature and also understand, you know, the technical elements. So I think that's a big part is bridging between different groups of people and different disciplines. And I found that that has been very valuable for me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Fast forward a little bit to Veracode and kind of starting that company with your co-founder. You'd mentioned that it was a spin out from Symantec. What got you passionate about, you know, leaving the, the confines of a relatively safe company and uh, starting back from scratch to, you know, not scratch because you had some IP you were going to pull out of Symantec, but what got you and your co-founder excited about starting that journey? Yeah. So my co-founder, Christian Ryu and I, we had been working together in front since the loft days. I think we met probably around 96 or so or 97. And we had been working together at At Stake. And one of the things that we built was this static binary analyzer that could find vulnerabilities, zero-day vulnerabilities in a piece of software, right? And our notion was find the vulnerabilities before you ship the software. That was like the message of the loft back, you know, in the days where we were sort of battling with Microsoft, we would always say like, if we can find the vulnerabilities with our tools and our knowledge, after you shift the software without access to source code and all your different development environments, you certainly can find these vulnerabilities before you ship the software. That's sort of been my, you know, sort of passion for over two decades is, you know, vendors need to know how to do this and vendors need to do this. So, but, you know, at this point in time, we had this piece of technology that was meant to do that. We went to Samantha. And so it was, you know, it, it was very early stages, right? It only worked on one language. It only worked on Windows and Linux C binaries. But when we went to Symantec, Symantec was like, well, this doesn't fit into our product strategy, right? This doesn't fit into our product line. And that's one thing I just didn't understand at the time. I was, you know, I understand it now that you have to have alignment of all the, you know, technology investments and products you're doing at a company, unless you're a conglomerate. But like a Symantec had a strategy and they're like, this doesn't fit. Application security just doesn't fit. So we're not going to do it. 
And I'm like, this is going to be awesome. You need to do this. Billions of dollars someday. Yeah, that was the lesson, (laughs) but it just didn't fit with what they wanted to do. So they basically shut us down and laid us off. And we said, we can't just let this die. Like we've been working on this for a couple of years. We can start from scratch and do this. But So we really wanted to build uh, technology that developers could use to find vulnerabilities in their code. We just felt like that was the thing that we needed to do. So we did get venture capital and we did buy the technology out from Symantec. And we had a patent also, patent application that we wanted to get to because we needed that. So we spun out the IP and I think most of the people, like six out of eight that were on the team wanted to come along. So that's how we got started back in 2006. That's awesome. And I think about those early days for you guys and the trials and tribulations of any startup is hard. But I also think about today meeting with venture capital, meeting with growth equity, private equity that I do quite often. And people talk about shift left as something new. And shift Mm -hmm. left for the listener simply means taking cybersecurity and making it part of the software development process. As you're hearing from Chris today, it's it's something they've been passionate about for over 20 years. So although the laggers in, in investment might think it's really cool and there's some hot companies beside you guys that are in this space, seeing the passion and commitment that you guys had, to your point, let's not bolt it on after the fact. Let's bake in this idea of building better, secure code from the beginning has been something that I think the rest of the industry just catching on and definitely uh, the investment community just catching on, but something that you know you guys set the trend a long time ago. Absolutely. I think we've made great progress, but I still feel there's like three quarters of the people building software aren't really doing this well. So I think there's I, I, still a big untapped market for us and everyone should be able to get better at doing this. And for me, this is what's really going to help dramatically you know, it's not the only thing that we need to do in cybersecurity to make the internet more secure and us feel like we can put more dangerous things connected to the internet, but it is a big piece of making the internet more secure. And, you know, this is one of the things that the president's executive order last May came out and said, you know, the software that the federal government is purchasing, we're going to require those vendors to build security in into their software development process. Like, we're going to ask them, what are you doing? Show me some artifacts that you're actually doing this. So for me, that's a a huge vindication of what I've been talking about for a long time, that they're actually going to make it a requirement. So I think just things are moving in the right direction there. I agree. We got a ways to go, but major improvements continue to happen across the industry from a software development perspective. And I'm sure that goes back to even the educational process of people thinking about not just speed of application and getting the application to market, but making sure that it's secure and let's not make our shipping software really beta customers testing our cybersecurity <laughs> right. Right. commitment once we get it out in the wild. So in terms of you meet somebody who's 16, 17, 18, going off to college or somebody who's graduated with a software development degree, but hasn't really found their passion Maybe you could talk about why somebody should get into cyber industry today. I know we talked about curiosity and and kind of the dynamic nature. I wonder if there are other things that you would talk to a, you know, an 18, 19-year-old about why we're excited about the cybersecurity industry and the future of it. Having any kind of a software engineering degree 
or like an IT systems degree. Those are great foundations to build upon because you already know a lot about how these systems work. And so those are great foundations, but you know, there's certainly a lot more people building software than doing application security, for instance, right? Or just cybersecurity in general. So you say like, what's different about those people and how can we figure that out and steer them, help them maybe in that career? And it's not for everybody, right? Like I ran into people that were kind of excited about cybersecurity. Actually, I worked with that at stake. And after they did it for a while, they're like, you know, I don't want to find the problems in other people's systems. I don't want to find how it works. I want to build something. I want to build my own thing. And that's perfectly fine. And there's a lot of people who want to do that. But if you're more on the side of figuring out how things work, if you found that that's something that interests you, I think you should take a look at cybersecurity. Because if you have that base foundation, like you could build things, but you find it more interesting to either take things apart or build tools that take things apart. I think that's been really rewarding where you're both building things that then can understand things. So you're sort of getting the best of both worlds. And a lot of reverse engineering tools are like that and you know, network sniffers and things like that. So you can do both, right? You can satisfy your curiosity and also satisfy your building part. But I would say if you're curious about how technology works, is that something that you find yourself interested in? Look at the different careers in cybersecurity, because you might find that that's something that's more exciting to you. And frankly, there's a lot of job openings and it's quite lucrative. Not that other technology degrees aren't lucrative, but you know, I was talking with some college administrators in the state of Massachusetts university system. And we were talking about like the salaries for entry-level cybersecurity people that just have a certificate or something. Like I was like, if you guys could teach these different certificates that people need to get their first cybersecurity job, these are very well-paying jobs. And they were kind of shocked at what people are getting hired fresh out of college. Yeah. So it's definitely something I encourage people to at least take a look at if you have any interest in it. Last question is maybe a little more specific. If there are things you think specifically people can do who don't have experience, like what's the first step you would encourage them to go do to try to get involved in the industry? So some of the things that I did, and this might not be great for everyone because, you know, I was coming from a sort of a software engineering background. I first wanted to learn about networking. I wanted to learn about TCP IP networking. So, you know, at a lower level than just the basics of, of like, you know, open a socket and send data in and out like that, uh, you know, the level of programmer does and everything else is abstracted away. So I kind of wanted to learn about, you know, how does the internet work? How does TCP IP work? How does DNS work? You know, what are all these different fundamental pieces? Because I think a lot of people who use computers, even in highly technical ways, it's just all magic that happens below the surface. And I think there's a lot of value to understanding that below the surface part. And also like understanding, you know, like Linux from like a system administrator's viewpoint. You don't need to understand operating systems from a programmer's viewpoint, like you're gonna build your own operating system. That's valuable too, but that's very technical. But just understanding from a system administrator's point of view, like what are permissions and what are processes and what are users? And all these kind of things are just good fundamental things that you can use across all kinds of domains of cybersecurity, whether it's 
you know, forensics, even social engineering, certainly application security and network security. So a little bit of understanding about how things work. But I also think, you know, just getting also the higher level, the higher layers, having some understanding of policy and regulations and things like that. I really feel it's a very interdisciplinary activity and it's good to have some knowledge of all these different layers. Like, you know, policy, frankly, kind of bores me. I just couldn't be on a compliance team. Some people, it's interesting because they get to take their more legal or accounting type mindset and apply it to something that's a little bit more interesting than, you know, counting dollars. So, you know, people come at it from that direction too. So that's what I would just recommend is start learning a little bit about all the domains. And it's also useful to figure out what you want to do, like what interests you the most. Makes sense. I think perfect advice and the many different aspects of the job and the many different ways, different types of skill sets that people can go get excited about and passionate about that can ultimately lead them into the cybersecurity industry makes total sense. I really thank you, Chris, for uh, your time today. And Thank you to the listeners. I hope they enjoyed the early part of the podcast where we talked about the history. I, I think even if you found it a little bit boring, I would encourage you to go read Cult of the Dead Cow or some of the other books about the early part of the industry. It'll give you an amazing set of baseline to why things are. And then you know, hopefully this next generation can take it to a whole nother level or reinvent it in, in a way that even we haven't thought possible. So that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Chris, for joining us and sharing your journey and thoughts. Please join us next time for another episode of the Executive Security Podcast. Thanks a lot and have a great day. Mm-hmm.